I actually think we probably get more bird poems than dead deer poems. Welcome to Page Count, presented by the Ohio Center for the Book at Cleveland Public Library. This podcast celebrates authors, illustrators, librarians, booksellers, literary advocates, and readers in and from the state of Ohio. I'm your host, Laura Maylene Walter, the Ohio Center for the Book Fellow and author of the novel Body of Stars. Today, we're talking with two editors from Mid-American Review, an international print literary journal based out of Bowling Green State University. Abby Cloud is the editor-in-chief of Mid-American Review and the author of the poetry collection Sylph. Megan Baraki is the poetry editor of Mid-American Review. They are going to offer us an on-air critique of three poems submitted to page count by Ohio writers. We'll also discuss publishing in literary magazines at large. Abby and Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Very exciting. Well, full disclosure for our listeners, I do already know about Mid-American Review because I received my MFA from Bowling Green State University. And as all graduate students in that MFA do, I worked on Mid-American Review. I became the fiction editor my second year, and I was also a coordinator for the Winter Wheat Festival of Writing, which if you live in Ohio, especially Northwestern Ohio, it is a really fantastic event, and you should get there every November and attend. Why don't we start by sharing a bit about the journal with our listeners? So, Abby, maybe you could start. Let us know a little bit about Mid-American Review. Mid-American Review is a continuously publishing journal since about 1980. And we publish poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, and translations. Translations are a major part of what we do. We publish a translation chapbook or two with each issue in which we put the original language alongside the English translation and had all kinds of different languages represented. That's really important to us because it helps really provide an international recognition of all the great literature that's being published everywhere. Our fiction, we always joke that it's work with a quirk, so it tends to be on the quirky side, a little bit unusual or different. And our poetry, we tend towards the lyrical as well as creative nonfiction, same sort of story. As you mentioned earlier, we're stocked primarily by our graduate students, but we also have undergraduate interns. And when possible, I like to have a faculty member or two serving on the staff as well, um, as I am in faculty. It just helps give a little bit of continuity and also further guidance and mentorship for all of our staff, many of whom are working with a lit journal for the very first time. So Megan, you graduated from the MFA program at Bowling Green, and now you are still working with Mara as the poetry editor. Can you tell us a bit about your experience on the graduate student side working for the journal and what it's been like to continue that on today? Yeah, it's been a, a really fun experience because actually before I did my MFA here, I was actually a BFA. So I had the chance to intern with Mar first, which was something really exciting because I hadn't really done much literary editing and publishing. And it was really helpful, I think, helping me realize what I like enjoyed doing. So that's why when I got into the MFA, I really wanted to be heavily involved with Mar. So working as a grad student was, I think, really helpful because a lot of my peers had never done like editing and publishing before. So it was helpful having been an intern before being able to kind of guide other people and help them feel more comfortable um, in their editing and publishing voices and like getting confident in like the kind of style that Mar has, which is very kind of, I think, unique and can be a little struggle sometimes for people getting used to like putting their preferences aside over the what the journal likes. 
so it was kind of fun doing that. And then getting to work as managing editor my second year was really helpful and just fun to get to kind of see all of the like nitty gritty that goes in editing and publishing. And then I graduated and now I'm an adjunct here at the university teaching still. So just kind of helping out and being poetry editor still. It's like fun. I don't want to give it up. When Abby was like, hey, you want to be poetry editor? I was like... Yeah, I I loved working with Mar as well, Mid-American Review or Mar listeners, as we refer to it. Probably a lot of people listening to this podcast know this, but for those who might not know that a lot of the literary journals you see, especially the print journals that have been around a long time with an established history like Mid-American Review, are often part of universities, either graduate programs or elsewhere in universities, which provides the institutional support for the publication. And often they are staffed by graduate students. So there is this interesting mix that maybe, Abby, you'd like to speak to where the journal itself might have an enduring aesthetic in some way or style, but the incoming graduate students who might only be there for two years or three years can also change the flavor of the journal a bit. So can you talk a bit about that, especially for writers who are submitting to journals? What should they be aware of in terms of the staffing of a journal? Oh, yes. If you are sending work to university-affiliated journals, you have to be aware that almost the entire staff will have turned over within two years. There's continuity in the style of what is actually published in the journal, but a lot of times what is sort of brought to the forefront, like what the whole group will talk about changes. That's what really changes when there are so many different people coming in and out because we sort of split up submissions. And while we have a senior editor reading every single submission before there's a decline or an acceptance, in the middle time or in the the beginning, what we used to call the slush pile when all the submissions were in post, the stuff that people want to talk about changes depending on the group, depending on what they're talking about in classes or what they've done before in their, their undergraduate work or their community writing groups and so on. So that stuff that sort of rises to the top can shift quite a bit and includes current trends or engaging things that are happening. When we started getting a whole lot of sonnets is some years back because there was a resurgence of the sonnet. That was a trend that was happening. So we do start to spot the trends over time. And and sometimes they're very individual trends. We joke about being the dead deer review because <laughs> we are Midwestern and they're in middle America and there are many, many deer that get annihilated. So <laughs> RIP deer, <laughs> right? Yeah. Rip. Um, there are a whole bunch of you know bits and pieces that come into play there that we see a lot of. And so if you're a beginning reader for a magazine like that, you might not realize at first that that's the thing that we see all the time. So it also takes the continuing staff like me and like Megan to sort of spot those things and say, okay, we've had a lot of that. So we're, we're not going to look at that as much. We'd like to see something different. And you do, you get that experience over time, but it's important for submitters to know that, you know, if they're writing something that has a, a somewhat trendy idea or something that is, you know, really typical of a place, we might have seen it a lot. So the poem might be less likely to rise to the top of the conversation because it's something that we've seen a lot. Nothing about the poem as a whole the poem may be amazing, but it may be something that we've seen a lot already. So it takes both groups working in tandem in order to see the new things, but also to maintain kind of an editorial status in order to keep it fresh, but also keep it high quality. 
Yeah. And I, in addition to Mar, I have worked with a few other journals as well. And I edited Gordon Square Review until last year. And in addition to those overarching similar kinds of themes or poems or stories you might come across in the queue, it always fascinated me that sometimes it's as if there's something in the air. We'll get a lot (laughs) of maybe stories that are not about a broad theme you would expect. I can't think of an example right now. Like, I don't know, a second person story told in vignettes that are focusing on a tsunami or something. And that hasn't been in the news. And it's interesting. It's like, what's happening with our right. collective creative imaginations um, mm-hmm. to have it come through like that? We had so many second person stories and so many adultery stories. And then darned if our contest winner, the contest winner that year was a second person adultery story. <laughs> I was just like, how dare? Like, how did this, how did we come to this moment? But it is, it's true. I always tell writers that, so the adultery story, that's something every journal sees a ton of that. That doesn't mean it can't be good or that you right. can't make it work, but it has to be that special and that creative and to really put the thought into it, mm-hmm. I think, to make it mm-hmm. work. Yep. Megan, maybe you can paint a picture for our listeners of what a MAR editorial meeting might look like, because a lot of journals that aren't run by universities, you're in submittable on the back end reading, and maybe you have some online meetings, but it's sort of individual and distance. So can you share with us what a typical meeting is like for Mid-American Review? Yeah. So as far as the poetry side will go is we'll get together once a week for about an hour. And before these meetings, as far as like what we're talking about as a group, we'll have an Excel sheet where we keep all of our poems and stuff and kind of like a voting spreadsheet and where people are asked to kind of like read and kind of gather some thoughts on pieces before they come in and kind of vote either yes, maybe or no for discussion. And this kind of helps us kind of focus in Uh, Maybe if we're like have 15 or 20 on the spreadsheet, like maybe if there's a lot of no's happening, not like focusing discussion time on that or not as much time, but we'll open up a packet, specifically the poems that we're interested in, and we'll take turns like reading them out loud because we find it's very important to kind of hear the poem because there's a lot of sound work and music that goes into poetry. So we'll do that. And then usually we start off the conversation talking about things that we enjoyed. So like maybe lines, Abby always says like mouth sounds or things that make the mouth feel good when you're reading them maybe images that really stuck with us and things like that. And then kind of starts to move it towards like more editorial stuff. So like thinking about like stuff that we've already taken for more, maybe things that we've been looking at recently, how that's kind of mapping up with that usually is what me and Michael are thinking. And then we're kind of going into maybe things that we're apprehensive about. Like maybe we love a poem, but we already have two poems that we're taking that are in a similar topic. So maybe it's not a right fit or maybe there's like, something craft wise that we aren't quite satisfied with or maybe like endings and stuff are usually a big one we'll talk about but once we kind of talk about that we'll kind of do a final vote and then continue on to the next one and that's usually kind of how it goes we'll take some breaks in between because I feel like if you're just talking about poetry straight for an hour you can kind of go crazy so we'll kind of have little anecdotes and stuff in between Yeah, you definitely need to rest your brain. Reading submissions is exhausting it takes a lot of concentration if you're doing it right you want to do right by the writers So again, I'm very much a prose person. And when I was in Mar, the fiction editors would sort of be at one side of the room and the poets on the other side of the room. And I always thought I was never involved directly in the poetry discussions, but it always felt to me like the poets had really great collaboration and were having really lively conversations. So yeah. (laughs) Sometimes too lively. (laughs) Sometimes too lively. But it's so much fun to read submissions with other people in the room too, Mm -hmm. which I think Mm -hmm. is something really special for a journal like Mar. There is a different feeling when you can just say to your friend and fellow editor right next to you, hey, listen to this line. Isn't this wild? You know, Mm -hmm. instead of 
being kind of stuck in your computer all the time. Mm -hmm. So Abby, how long have you been the editor in chief? Oh, let's see. Since fall 2012. Okay, good. So a good over a, a decade. long time. Congratulations. Yeah. From 2001 to 2003, I was a grad student and I've been working with the magazine off and on in some capacity since then. So it's been a long time that I've worked specifically with an American Review. Yeah, it's clearly seems to be a journal that once you get involved, you don't want to leave. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you two have held on. So since you are the editor in chief, you serve as the umbrella, you mm-hmm. kind of cover everything. You have your fiction staff, but you're also, you know, working with the fiction team to approve pieces. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell us, especially for someone like me, who's such a prose writer, in terms of submitting to a journal like Mar, the poetry side, what makes that maybe a bit different or unique? Are there any unique considerations for writers who are submitting poetry versus submitting a short story or an essay? That's such a good question. Because of course, usually on the fiction side, we're seeing one piece by someone, most likely. Occasionally, you know, we have short collections, like maybe three flash or something like that, which we love. We're very fond of that. But usually there's like the one shot for the fiction writers. So that does put a lot of pressure on a story on one specific story and all its components, which is why it's really good to send to places that accept simultaneous submissions. That's so important because that's the way that you get more eyes on your work. On the poetry side, we have a couple of pieces to look at, usually four or five pieces per packet. And it's important to understand, though, that also means that the poetry readers are reading more works of art, essentially. They're spending time with each piece. And that can wear the poetry readers out a little bit faster sometimes than the fiction readers. Fiction, it's volume. Like you just have the volume of work to read. With the poets, it's the numbers coming past your face, forming an opinion about each individual work can be really exhausting. Usually when we're reading a packet of poetry submissions, it's very seldom that a whole packet will interest us. Usually it's like one or two things, maybe three. We've been doing a lot of sets of two and three lately, which I prefer. I like that. Gives us a little something more for each writer. That also means that we could have in discussion, maybe there's three stories on the fiction side, but there might be 10 or 15 poems by you know 10 different writers that we're talking about. So we use the Excel spreadsheet with the voting on the poetry side. You wouldn't do that on the fiction side. A show of hands is usually enough. But when you have that many things to talk about on the poetry side, the yes, no, maybe, and our very complicated system that we we have (laughs) evolved over time, that is really crucial because it keeps us organized. It makes sure that when we're having these far-flung poetry conversations, that we are still coming back to the center. Like, do we feel like this is fitting in? I love working with both. That's kind of why we've changed the structure of our meetings. Poets meet, everybody meets together and we talk about something editing related, and then fiction means. Mm. I can now be in both conversations, which is amazing. That's a big change. It was very, very overdue. And I'm really appreciating being able to be present in, in both conversations. That's been really crucial for me to sort of keep up. And that way, again, that umbrella actually works that way. I know what's been happening. I know what we have. I know what is going to complement from the two sides of the table. And that also helps us when we're picking creative nonfiction because we know what we need. We, we can see all the pieces together. So my status as being that umbrella and then our managing editor also works primarily with poetry, but ultimately also works with fiction. Like we have that bridge to make sure everything collaborates and coheres. You know, when I was a grad student and working with poets, and as I mentioned, like everything was postal submissions when I started, we just come in and 
dump out a bin all over the table and read um, read all together. We're doing so much more reading online that we don't read together as much anymore. We're mainly, when we're meeting, we're talking about the stuff that everybody has liked already or that some people have liked a lot. So there is a little bit of isolation that has kind of trended in as far as the reading goes, but it also means that we're more efficient. We're more together. We're able to make it through the volume of submissions. So a lot has changed. A lot has changed since I started, but I think for the most part, I think it's for the better. I think we're magazines that function similarly to how ours works are finding that some of those changes are really working for us and helping us do better work. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there have been a lot of changes since I graduated, which is great. I don't feel old at all. It's fine. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine that you moved on. It's fine. It's okay. We're still really behind on reading. So we still have that going for us. I mean, that is eternal in all of the mags, I think. (laughs) So a lot of submissions come pouring in because I'm correct that Mid-American Review, the submissions are still free, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because a lot of journals charge $3 or so. And that was something else I always loved about Mar is that it feels more open and inclusive when no one has to pay a small submission fee. So I think that's great. Can we talk about some of the the nuts and bolts of submitting that writers always want to know? I always hear from writers who want to know how much the cover letter matters. So can you each share your points of view about the writer's cover letter on their submission? I have always tried to not really read the cover letter as much as possible. Sometimes I get a little nosy and I want to know a little bit about the person, but usually cover letters are like the last thing we'll look at if we look at them at all, because we're more focused on the work itself and what it's doing versus like who that person is and like what they're doing. Like if they're like famous or something like that's not stuff that we're like really looking at at Mar when we're kind of looking in. So usually when I'm like sending out stuff myself too, I put very bare, bare bones in a cover letter as far as that goes. But yeah, usually we don't read it. And we always try to tell our grad students when they're first coming in to not pay as much attention to it and just kind of focus on the work usually. We take it into consideration at certain points for like certain situations, obviously, but we try not to read them that much. I know in a previous podcast, Kirsten talked a little bit about letting editors know if it's going to be your first publication or something like that. We love knowing that. That's the kind of thing that I think is really important because it helps us sort of see where you are in your journey and helps us you know, feel like we can bring you into the community even more. I don't love, occasionally we get you know, super, super lengthy lists of where people have been published or like a complete history of where someone's been published. Doesn't matter whether it's your first publication or you've been published a thousand times. Like we're going to give your work the same amount of attention and the same sort of energy that we would want our work to receive as well at another publication. So I do read the, the cover letters like once I've read a submission and always before I decline something, I'll read it. I think it's really important to see, especially, you know, it might be someone that I've met or someone whose work I've read elsewhere. And I want to make sure that I am aware of anything special that they wanted to tell me. So we do look at them just usually after the reading process. Right. And it's not the defining factor in accepting or rejecting right. a piece. I always like to share that I think this was when I was at Mar, and we sometimes would get short stories submitted by writers who had stories published in the New Yorker or the Atlantic and legitimately did because I would Google them and I would look to check and they did. And 
the story they sent wasn't for Mar. It wasn't for us. It wasn't our style. Not good or bad. It just wasn't for us. And frankly, the fact that they were published in The New Yorker had no bearing on our decision, you know? Mm -hmm. So it really is about sending the right work to the right journal, definitely. And we get the same thing with degrees. You know, if someone has a degree or they don't, or they have a certificate, or they've just been writing as a hobby, it doesn't really matter to the decision process at all. You know, it's good for you. I, you know, it's like, great, I celebrate that journey with you. But also, yep. it's not going to affect my decision about your work. In terms of poets submitting their poetry to Mar, what are some best practices for the actual submission or any common mistakes you see in terms of how writers are submitting their work? What do you love recently, Megan? Oh, are you talking about font? (laughs) I am talking about font. (laughs) So I have like a font bias, which is if I open up a submission and it's in Garamond, I'm immediately inclined to enjoy it more for some reason. I just visually. I knew you were going to say Garamond, (laughs) poets in Garamond, because it's so um, graceful. Yeah, Yeah, I love Garamond, but sometimes you'll open up a submission and if it's in like a kind of weirder, like not like a normal font that you would see it in like Times New Roman, Ariel or Garamond or something like that. I've had grad students before send me pieces and be like, this is hard to read in this font or something like that. So kind of being, I guess, mindful of the formatting and like legibility of a piece and like how you want that to be like portrayed as far as like spacing, especially with poems. Are you double spacing it, single spacing it? What are the margins kind of looking like? How is that going to transfer to somebody else? Visually, it's like a off the bat kind of thing I'll notice. We have a specific size and often we'll get poems with really long lines and that's just not going to look that way in our journal. We don't typically turn the page around. We could, but we don't normally. So anything that's going to have extra long lines, it's not really going to fit with our particular page width of six inches. So (laughs) we have to be really mindful of that. And occasionally if it's really close, we'll test it. We'll actually break out the template and test it if it's something that we're kind of interested in. So being aware of what the page looks like in the publication that you're after is really crucial. And to that end too, like we get a lots of poems that experiment with spacing and typography and stuff like that. I think it's important to send that kind of thing as PDFs. A lot of folks don't realize that from computer to computer, it's going to change. So a PDF is the most stable, especially if it has the fonts embedded, because you know, if you put something in a font that I don't have, it's not going to be in that font on my computer if you send it as a Word doc or something. So, you know, little technical things like that can make a big difference in terms of how we see the poem with that first look, with that very first opening. We want to see it the way that you want us to see it. So thinking about that is really crucial as well, having a good sense for how things look from place to place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with literary journals, They all get so many submissions. I mean, editors are just consumed by submissions at all times that it does make a difference when you open the document if the font is maybe less standard. I know this can be subjective, but if it seems like an unattractive font, I don't think an editor would reject it for that, but it creates an impression. And when you have so many things, you just don't want to give the editor any kind of negative impression at all. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really smart advice to make sure it looks good on the page and be aware of the standards. You know, Garamond in poetry seems to usually (laughs) be pretty safe. Um, I like Garamond in prose too, but for longer stories, sometimes it's harder to read and Times New Roman is better, you know, so writers should just kind of do their research and be aware of Mm -hmm. what will look good. Which kind of brings us to rejection, which is <laughs> any lit mag editor and any writer who's ever submitted to a lit mag rejection is a big part of the process. Can you talk a bit about 
sending rejections from an American review. And I don't know if this has changed since I've been there, but when I was there, there was a tiered rejection process. So if that's still in place, can you explain to our listeners what that is and what is happening behind the scenes when a writer gets that dreaded no thank you? I'm guessing, Abby, you probably want me to talk about it. I do. (laughs) I sure do. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the person that does most of the rejections as far as poetry goes, because I did it during managing editor and I do it now as poetry editor. It's never fun. It can be kind of sad and disheartening to get a rejection letter, but there's also like sending it as someone who is a writer themselves is always like a process that has to be done on my end, but doesn't really make me happy, I guess. But I try to personalize. I know it's hard because we get so many poetry submissions to like personalize rejections. So I always try to like, this is something I picked up from Abby, which is always trying to find one poem that somebody liked um, in the reading chain or something like that to let them know that we are actually like seeing them as a writer and as like a person. And like, we try to take as much time as possible with each submission and give them the respect it deserves. So I do a lot of tier one rejections because I get sent a lot from like the reading circles and stuff. So there'll be like people that are doing individual readings outside of group. But usually if we take it to discussion as a group, it'll automatically get a second tier, which usually is asking them to submit again talking a little bit more in depth about some of the things that we enjoyed about it, particularly maybe the ones we talked about as a group. Um, And then we have a third tier rejection, which is essentially like it was so close, but then we just like there was something that kept us from taking it. I usually take a lot of time with those and like let them know like what we really liked and like how excited we are for them to see it somewhere else and like them to find the right fit for it. Um, We also have a tier four, which is just kind of like a blank one. If for any other reason, if we feel the need to personalize it and stuff. So that's kind of usually the process for the rejections go as far as poetry. I do each of them by hand. I don't like mass send them out or anything. I do each one individually. Mm -hmm. I always sign my name. I always type it out rather than copying and paste it because I feel like it gives me a second to kind of think about that packet as well. Like the act of writing my name out and like writing a sincerely or all the best kind of helps me keep in the moment and keep it from being like a repetitive task or something, but kind of keeps it human for me at least. But yeah, and then also like we've been adding because we're a little bit behind on uh, reading just because of COVID and everything. We're still kind of catching up. I usually will uh, say something about that and like apologize for the delay as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Writers, another really common thing is editors often get behind for a lot of reasons. So that's normal. Yeah. Hearing you mention the tier four rejection completely reminded me. I think the first tier four rejection I sent at Mar, which is just the blank email that you have to fill in yourself with a personal note, because it was a story I really, really loved. And for whatever reason, we didn't take it. And there could be so many, so many reasons we had something similar or just we couldn't come to agreement, whatever it was. And so I sent a personal rejection and the writer wrote me back later to tell me that story got picked up by the Kenyan Review. I mean, I was thrilled. I was thrilled for the writer. So I think editors have to pass on things all the time. And we Mm -hmm. want you to succeed, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. from hearing both of you, it sounds like you're both in agreement on that as well. Like you want the writers to do well. Absolutely. People always apologize for the extra work when they have to send us a withdrawal because something got taken elsewhere, but it is a routine part of what we do. And we are all about that because writers getting published is good for us as writers. So, you know, it just adds to the literary landscape and we are very happy about that. That's good for everybody in our field. Yeah. As we're like finishing up our issue too, we're sending out a lot of acceptances. 
And we've been getting some back from people saying like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I forgot to withdraw this. Like, it's been published somewhere else. And like, it's always super exciting to be able to email them and be like, hey, where is it getting published? So like, I can put it on to the grad students that were like, really jazzed about it. We're always rooting for people, even if we don't get the piece and we want it. Like, we're just really excited to see it out in the world and other people reading it. It's always just a great time, I think. Yeah. Well, so speaking of poetry, we have three poems here that we should turn to because I could talk about lit journal stuff all day (laughs) and I'm already realizing how much time we've spent. So for our listeners, we have three poems that were submitted to page count by Ohio writers and we're going to discuss these poems pretending as if they came through a queue at a literary journal. And so what would their reactions be as editors? So the first poem, I believe, Megan, you said you would like to read. Would you like to go ahead and read it? All right. So Plague Doctor by Sarah Scherer. Today, I found the corpse of a bird in my front yard, bald and eyeless and wet, with only a few feathers left to suggest a body once capable of flight organs red against a spring lawn, trying to be green. I slipped on a duckbill N95, slipped one lavender-scented garbage bag inside another, and scooped him up, so light, barely there. His dull thump made my trash bin a hollow drum, made my body hollow with it, marked a tally on its dusty, empty walls. I am washing my hands again, again, again. Great. Thank you for reading that. So I'm going to let the two of you take it away. If you had received this in the marquee, or what do you anticipate maybe your editorial discussions might surround? Well, first, Megan would ask, what are some things that we appreciated or enjoyed? (laughs) We always like to start with the positive components that really drew our attention. Because of course, at this point, these are things that at least someone in the group has liked. So for instance, we (laughs) talked about mouthfeel earlier. And my immediate reaction, especially to this third stanza, is the mouthfeel of those words dull, hollow, tally, also dull and drum. They just feel good to say, and they mesh really well linguistically for me. I'm a big fan of that. I don't have to have alliteration or anything like that, but I like to have words that just feel good to say. Having a grouping like that is really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also really enjoy, I asked to read it out loud because I was reading it at home by myself the other day. And I was like really interested in the way that it sounds out loud, specifically with like the bald and eyeless and wet. I think really I was enjoying as well as the ending of kind of been into the kind of like repetition echo thing at the end of poems. Um, So that kind of immediately drew my eyes personally. And I like that as well. Yeah. The repetition of the, again, gives us that it kind of highlights the worry that is inherent in the plague of COVID, like having the having a repetition like that can be a hard sell editorially, but it is really driven. It has a meaning to it. That's really crucial too. So having that kind of driving force at the end there, like scoring over the worry that we are experiencing was really powerful. Megan, did you have a least favorite stanza? Um, I think maybe my least favorite was probably the second stanza. And the only reason I say that was because I felt like the duck bill N95 stood out to me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still trying to figure out if it was like maybe a syllable thing for me. Cause sometimes when there's maybe two or one syllable words next to like a really long multi-syllable word, it usually kind of sticks mm-hmm. out a little bit because it was really technical in consideration to the around stuff, which was a, not as hyper-specific and like that kind of, I don't, I don't want to say scientific or like medical like mm-hmm. way, but kind of that. And also with like the whole N95 mixed with the plague doctor Mm -hmm. was kind of 
for me, but I did like the lavender scented garbage bags. I love that. It elevated it from just imagining a generic garbage bag until mm-hmm. I could really picture what that was. Yeah. Because it's an awful smell too. Like it's a yeah. weird yeah. choice for garbage bags. I have that too. Whenever I pick out accidentally, like I never get scented ones because of that reason. Like it's a weird sort of sickly smell. Mm-hmm. So it seemed yeah. appropriate in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I wondered, I noticed the Duckbill and 95 stuck out for me a bit too. I wondered if, does it feel like too much attempt to echo the bird theme of calling it a duckbill? But I'm not sure, but that did cross my mind. But speaking of birds, again, I am a non-poet, so you're getting questions from a (laughs) non-poet here, but that's one of the things I remember from my poetry cohort at Bowling Green and Mm -hmm. even in Mar discussions talking about how many poems are about birds. It is just a common topic, which which is not a problem on its own. But I'm wondering if you can speak to that, if birds are a common image or theme in poems, what is this poem maybe doing or not doing that, that helps it rise above that? I think, yeah, I actually think we probably get more bird poems than dead deer poems, but it's just so common. I write about birds all the time. I write about birds and wings. They're everywhere in my poetry. So I fit in with that trend also, or that fact. It's not even a trend anymore. It's just a fact. (laughs) I think in this case, because we start off, you know, the corpse, it's a corpse, it's dead immediately. And the focus becomes the body, the empty body. So I didn't mind that it was a bird poem because it was automatically going in a different direction. I don't know. Megan, how did you feel about that? Yeah, I actually agree with that because I'm kind of impartial to bird poems because we do get a lot of them. Um, So it is something that is cycled a lot. But I think by the use of making it about the body and it's not focusing on like the wings itself or flight, which is like a common thing that I don't want to say like a cliche that people will use, but referring to birds in flight and like freedom and stuff, it's talking about the body and it being on the ground, I think really already like switches our perspective of what we're used to seeing with a bird poem. So I think actually piqued my interest and I was like, oh, this is doing something different that I, that I don't normally kind of see uh, with this kind of stuff. So I think it made it, I wasn't concerned about it being a bird as much as I would have maybe been in a different situation. Yeah. And there's something about that final stanza and the repetition that for me made me think of beyond the fact of the bird, there's this underlying anxiety coursing through it. So that seemed to take it in a different sort of direction, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really good. Okay. Well, before we move on to the next poem, is there anything else either of you would like to share about this or any suggestions for the writer? I just want to highlight the movement from with only a few feathers left to suggest a body. Mm. You know, it, it continues once capable of flight, et cetera, et cetera. But that one line to suggest a body is really powerful because like we had a corpse and then now we're suggesting a body. It's almost like the remnants as opposed to an actual shape, which I really appreciate it. It sort of erased the picture that we already had, which I think is is often a really good move. Very vivid, very evocative. Mm-hmm. We'll move on to the second poem, which I will read. That This Blue Exists by Carol Mertz. I take up a spool of blue thread determined to thread my way through the amateur marriage toward a formidable dinner at the homesick restaurant. Together, we'll be digging to America. Blue A will help us with our breathing lessons and the empathy exams in order to arrive, perhaps, at St. Maybe, the place where she'll chant her usual and clumsy beginner's goodbye. We'll continue searching for Caleb through the gap of time, trying to tie together the sleeper and the spindle, Together, we'll navigate a patchwork planet, searching for a distant view of everything. 
So before we get into this one, we talked about cover letters earlier, and I actually have a bit of some background information about this poem that I didn't share with you in the beginning because I wanted to receive your authentic reaction as if it just came across in the queue. So I'll just open it up for your first impressions about this poem. Uh, You want to start, Megan? Yeah, I was immediately picking out like a lot of use of alliteration and sound work. So I was noticing that the author was aware of that and like their choice of line breaks and stuff. I love the use of bluettes. Bluet, there's this book that I really like that's titled that. So I was immediately kind of like, oh, blue. Yeah. Maggie Nelson, right? Maggie Nelson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great book. Yep. Maggie Nelson. (laughs) Wave Books 2009, everyone. That's, yeah, it's a great book. Uh, Really good. So it kind of already, I think, did that for me. And like the use of like image and color was a nice start, I think, for me to get me into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's some really lovely concepts here. Like the, I oriented myself to the trying to tie together the sleeper and the spindle, which was a really evocative moment. It gave me pause, made me sort of stop and picture something and felt kind of magical um, Mm -hmm. in a way, not in, you know, really overt way, but sort of like the natural magic. I think that comes out of those concepts together. I really enjoyed that. I did ask this author how how she would like to pronounce bluet. Maggie Nelson, does she pronounce it? I think it's bluet for her. Bluet is the the dictionary, but I think bluet is another pronunciation. Anyway, I just wanted to clarify that that's um, what the author wanted. The author, when she first sent me this poem, said that it is built from titles used by other authors and other poets. And you could probably see that scattered throughout. I know the empathy exams jumped right out at me. And I wanted to have the writer kind of hear reactions without the editors maybe knowing that information because editors don't always read the cover letters first. Right. So if you weren't aware of that when you read the poem, does that change how you feel about the poem or how useful do you think it is to even have this information? Is it better to just experience the poem first on its own without having that information? I don't think it changes my perception of a poem but it does give a clearer reason for a couple of the moments where I was like, this takes me out of the poem. Mm. So like the phrases, some really specific phrases like empathy exams or homesick restaurant or Saint maybe they felt sort of too signposted, I guess, if that makes sense in much the same way that the duck bill and 95 does in the previous poem. Like here we get these really specific statements when we're really kind of doing something different, I think in the poem that's well beyond that sort of, idea or that really specific signpost. Whereas others are more subtle, like breathing lessons is always a kind of evocative and it has a beautiful sound in it as well. And, you know, Patchwork Planet also works at the end, I think. So it's sort of testing what works and what doesn't in the sense of, is it too specific for this particular poem, which I think is taking on a different life. But the great thing is you can cut out the stuff that doesn't resonate with the poem. You can do something a little different with it and start you know, filling things in with your own language. It's so interesting that you said that because it's sort of a different sort of sento. Usually a sento is lines from other poems. And we don't see a whole lot of those. Occasionally we do. So I wouldn't have spotted this, I think, as a title sento. But like I said, it sort of underscores that the bits that didn't read as the poet's sort of inner voice there's a reason for that. <laughs> so right. it's, it's kind of affirmational, as a matter of fact, in a weird <laughs> way, I would feel. Yeah. Hmm. It's an interesting strategy, though. I'm gonna have to think about that. It's not usually something that bothers me as an editor when I'm reading. It's, it's nice to know, like Abby said, I think, as far as to help understand certain things as far because like when I was reading it, it did kind of feel like there was maybe like two voices at times, the inner poet voice, and then this 
hyper specific, almost like uh, formal voice. It almost felt like at times. Um, so kind of threading between those moments and thinking about the intentionality between those, if it's like intentional, how are you switching between those two and how are you bringing the like reader along with you on that journey to also be like, yeah, this is totally, I'm here for it. And I understand why we're doing this kind of giving it the context. And as a writer, I can see the draw to creating something out of titles like this, because it does in a way, it sets your creativity free in a a whole new way. Then it creates that extra challenge of making it work as its own thing that rises above the other titles. So it is challenging. So if you were to get a poem like this in your queue, do you think the writer should mention like under the title what it is? Or do you think it's better you would rather have everything stand on its own without knowing that it's a title cento i think we would need an epigraph yeah we would expect an epigraph yeah just a brief explanatory one um it's sort of like what you do with a golden shovel like you want to give the alert to what that's from since it's titles i wouldn't want a list like you would normally do with a cento i wouldn't need a list but i would like a little epigraph that just sort of explains that and it wouldn't sway my opinion of the piece Mm -hmm. but it would just give me a reason If there was something that didn't hit my ear quite right, it would help me understand why that was true and then decide whether it was working or not. Like you could see like both of us had an instinct (laughs) in our initial comments. Like there's always going to be an editorial instinct in there somewhere, whether you know why or not. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. And I think it is good for writers to know, as you said earlier, you don't always read the cover letter before you Mm -hmm. read the piece. And so if there is something about the piece, its structure or how it's made that is that important, then putting the Mm -hmm. epigraph is the good move. Yeah, yeah. Anything else on this one before we move on? I'm just really glad that we had a call out to Maggie Nelson there. Yeah. And that we had something kind of an interesting form. That's something that I'm going to think about probably all day now. More Maggie Nelson. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, Abby, would you like to read our final poem? Yes. Okay, this poem is entitled, Let Me Be the First. Let me be the first to admit I don't know what day of the week it is. The afternoon's got long fingers and the new trees are kissing green. I'd like to get in a motor vehicle. I'd like to operate heavy machinery. I'm so sick of saying things and not one of them a scientific breakthrough. I find me in the garden. What a relief and then lose me all over again. How disappointing to be so thoroughly horizontal. I'm a waste. I'm a sad grape. If only I could stay mad at me. This is a good example of Megan and I having completely opposite reactions to something. Really? Yeah, we were just talking about this earlier because the motor vehicle threw you out, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I liked that. What struck you about it? I don't know if it was just because I'm used to seeing in a poem, I would just see vehicle. I'm not used to seeing motor before it. And maybe that's just mm. my age showing. Um, <laughs> it could be as simple as that. <laughs> but yeah, that was something I noticed that we were on different ends about, which is not normal, but does happen mm-hmm. a bit as well. <laughs> I love it when it happens because it's sort of like, it's a good revelation that editors are going to have completely different opposing viewpoints to something, to anything. I read motor vehicle as being not that the writer is from 
an era where you call cars motor vehicles, but more, mm-hmm. it's almost like a vintage throwback. Like we're going to mm-hmm. describe it in this way that's a little out of time that adds to a kind of the vibe of the piece. But mm-hmm. I can see how that could throw you off, especially with all the kissing green imagery of trees beforehand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it because it also echoes later with operate heavy machinery and a scientific breakthrough. Like it has that sort of technical manual language mm-hmm. that repeats. So it's sort of like setting you up for that later. And I don't know why I like that. This is sort of a poem of surprise in that way. Things are kind of unexpected. I was into that with this one, the idea that we have these sort of unexpected little phrases popping up. I really enjoyed that. What else, Megan, struck you about this one? Either things you liked or things that pulled you out? What else did you think about this? While motor vehicle kind of pulled me out, I feel like there was a lot of moments that really like kind of pulled me in. In this piece, I am partial to couplets. So visually on the page, it's like, this is like a joke that everyone has. But if I see a poem in couplets, I'm automatically because I write a lot in couplets. So I feel like that form, putting my bias aside, is working fairly well for this piece to give it some space and like really help some of these line breaks, which are, I don't know, some of the line breaks are just so good. And then like when we're reading them out loud, I'm just kind of brought back to them and like how disappointing to be so thoroughly horizontal is such an interesting way to break up that line and not something Mm. that I would have thought to do, but is working really well, I think, for that. I love a poem that surprises me, especially when you're reading so much. Sometimes it's fun to kind of see something that like brings you by surprise. And I've been really drawn to strange pieces recently as well. Something about I'm a sad grape. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about all morning. I like was reading it again while I was brushing my teeth before (laughs) coming to the office today. And I was like, there's something about that. And like, just like really had me thinking. Yeah, there is something about that. I'm so drawn to that simple. I'm a sad grape. It's so kind of, and I mean this in the best of ways, it's sort of pathetic, but really it does evoke that feeling (laughs) when you're wallowing or when you are so disappointed in yourself. Yeah. It's like so perfect for the poem. It just makes, it like makes Mm -hmm. sense at that point in the piece too. Like, of course it's a grape. Of course it's a sad grape. I can't explain. Of course. (laughs) Of course it's a grape. Of course. And just one, not a bunch, Mm -hmm. just one grape, one sad little grape. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think too, like that last stanza, I don't know, Megan, you might not agree with this, but I would have loved to see like one more thought in that last couplet after the grape and then before, if only I could stay mad at me. Mm-hmm. I would love to see like just one more. I'm really rhythm oriented. While the rhythm works there, like I still feel like a little bit of extra, like a little bit more would be really nice there to fill that. But the same way, like I would love the title just to read into the poem. Like I don't need it to be repeated at the beginning. There's also this sort of like argument for symmetry in my brain to sort Mm -hmm. of trim that at the opening, add a little bit at the ending. Not super, super crazy oriented about shape on the page, but in this case, I think it would work to have that little shift. I'm a sad grape is such a showstopper. And then the final line, Mm -hmm. if only I could stay mad at me, I could see how adding something more could help Mm -hmm. the development of the poem. Yeah. And it's interesting that Megan brought up its couplets because this is a podcast audio only We're just reading them out loud for our Mm -hmm. listeners. But of course, editors, how things appear on the page, as we mentioned earlier, does matter. And this poem is in couplets. Maybe I should have described the stanzas for all of them. But (laughs) I agree. I like couplets, too. There's something about them that is so it feels satisfying. Yeah, it's especially like interesting because like couplets are supposed to be like romantic. They're like from the sonnet, right? And there's two. It's a couple. But it's like also a very lonely poem. So it's working, I think, in the form itself to kind of contrast what's going on in the poem, which I think is doing something very self-aware and interesting in that way as well. 
Is there anything you would like to add that you didn't quite get to for this poem? I think I hit all my moments. I just really like thinking about new trees are kissing green. I have been thinking about that for a while too. That's my kind of little showstopper there. So we love a moment. (laughs) We love a moment. Well, and I do want to say thank you to the writers who sent in their poems. Thank you very much. It is always an act of bravery to have your work critiqued in general, much less on a podcast that other people can listen to. But I think your insights were so fascinating and I think will really help other poets who are hoping to submit to Mid-American Review or to submit to other journals. So that's really great. And I know we're almost out of time, but I just have one final question for both of you. You're both writers as well, in addition to being editors. Can you talk a bit about your own writing and maybe how editing poetry at Mar, how that influences or informs your own writing? Take it away, Megan. (laughs) I personally write a lot about grotesque imagery and like bugs are like a big thing for me specifically earthworms um it's kind of like my thing i guess a lot of people know me for around here this is what i love about universities and graduate programs (laughs) i know you've already graduated but people know you for earthworms yeah Yeah. amazing amazing go on (laughs) it's like beautiful because like one of my friends is still in the program and he put an earthworm in a poem and he was like he came to me he's like do you want credit for this and i was like what do you mean it's just an earthworm (laughs) so (laughs) It sounds like you can now take credit for the existence of earthworms in general. So <laughs> honestly, I'm bringing them back on the map, it feels like. Yeah. So that as well as like, um, I read a lot about my mother and like family relations and stuff. So that's kind of like where I come from and what I'm writing. I've noticed like when we put together the most recent issue, the double issue 41, there was something that ended up happening there because I was there for the whole process and working very heavily where there was a lot of, for some reason, just mom poems that were coming in that were just so good and they kept getting brought up and we kept taking them and like just interesting imagery. I feel like every issue I can always convince Abby like of taking one weird out of pocket poem (laughs) 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 that kind of like... um, bring something just like kind of crazy, I guess, or abnormal, I guess. It's something fun. I like to have fun when I'm writing. We have published a couple of really fun poems that like I wouldn't have chosen myself or I wouldn't have picked out of the pile, but in hearing like discussion and I've been sort of swayed, not that I'm necessarily a really traditional writer, but I'm not super good with like humorous poems or poems that have that aspect of the wild about them, like just like wild linguistically. My own work tends to be lyrical and image oriented and writing a lot about divination right now, different forms of divination and interesting writing some semi persona poems, like they're personas, but they're also like facets of my own character. Weirdly. I would love to be able to write more and submit more, but editorial work really takes it out of you sometimes. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll, I'll put aside time specifically for the writing or the submitting the business of writing and then the writing like they have to happen yeah. separately for me I've never successfully overlayered all of these aspects I have to divide them into times I don't mind that though that's okay <laughs> it's it makes my my brain a little bit more organized and happier about it so yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that great well you both have been so generous with your time and your insights can you let our listeners know where they can go to learn more about mid-american review or the bowling green mfa so our website for mid-american review can be found at bjsu.edu slash mid-american review we also have a twitter which is midam underscore review <laughs> something like that i'll link to that yeah thank you Laura mentioned our festival earlier, Winter Wheat, which is bgsu.edu slash Winter Wheat. It's, as you say, every November, pretty much. And we do have some online offerings as well, not just local ones, so people can 
attend from anywhere, which is really fun, really exciting. Well, thank you both so much for being here and for putting a little poetry in my day. Thank you. Poetry. (laughs) Thanks, Laura. Page Count is presented by the Ohio Center for the Book at Cleveland Public Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review for Page Count wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more online or find a transcript of this episode at ohiocenterforthebook.org. Follow us on Twitter at CPLOCFB or find us on Facebook. If you'd like to get in touch, email ohiocenterforthebook at cpl.org and put podcast in the subject line. Finally, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Laura Maley. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks for another chapter of Page Count.